morning, church. How are you this morning? I want to welcome you to Element Church. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here at Element. And we're so excited that you're here to join with us this morning. Now, um, as we do every single week, you can follow along this morning in the Bible app. All the scriptures that we're going to look at and read today are already covered, uh, already laid out for you in the Bible app. You can use this QR code, or you can just open up the YouVersion Bible app, go to live events, and your, your phone already knows you're at Element Church, and so it'll be the first thing that pops up that you can click. Just like Roselle talked about with um, our giving, um, there's an opportunity for you to give within the Bible app itself. Now, as we get started this morning, I, I want to start with a question, and I want you to participate, so you're going to raise your hand. Does that make you nervous? Does it make you nervous when a preacher says, I'm going to ask you a question? Uh, no, this one's easy, okay? How many of you in here have siblings? Just by a show of hands, how many of you have siblings? Yeah, it could be full, half, step siblings, okay. How many of you have uh, at least three or more siblings? How many have three or more? Okay, so that's a pretty good number. Mine hands up. I have two brothers and a sister. Does anybody in here have five siblings or more? I think I see two hands, but the lights are a little bright. Six or more? We still have at least one hand up, I think. Man, that's impressive, and I feel bad for you. So, um, now, I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus had at least six siblings. He had at least four brothers and two sisters that we know about. Uh, in Matthew chapter 13, it says this. And when Jesus had finished uh, these parables, he went away from here. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this, this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get these things? And so Mary, as a virgin, conceived Jesus through the power of God and the Holy Spirit. And while she was a virgin then, she was actually engaged to a man named Joseph to be married. After giving birth to Jesus, her and Joseph were married, and then they went on to have a normal marriage that produced normally conceived children. And so Jesus grew up in a family with at least six siblings, and these men and women that we just read about in Matthew 13 would be Jesus's half-brothers and sisters. Now, can you imagine for just a moment what it would have been like to have Jesus as your older brother? Just think about that for a minute or two. What would that have been like? How many times do you think Jesus' brothers and sisters had to listen to their mom and Mary say, why can't you be more like your brother? Can you imagine having to hear all of these stories about how wonderful your older brother was? Now listen, if you have kids in here, you know that your kids, for better and for worse, model what they see in you. Your language, your attitudes, your mannerisms, for better and for worse, 
The older your kids get, the more you see yourselves in them. The more they start to reflect back to you all the good and all the bad things that are about you. And if you're married in here and have kids, you know that there has been a moment when your child did something, something annoying, something infuriating, and you looked at your spouse and you were like, mm, I wonder where they got that. Right? You've had those conversations. You've looked at them and been like, yeah, that's your son. Uh, yeah, did you just see what your daughter did? Now, I just imagine for a moment, do you think that conversation ever happened between Mary and Joseph? And you know how that conversation went. You know Mary's like, did you see Jesus? That one's mine, Joseph. You didn't have any hand in that. You see these fools? <laughs> That's obviously you. Poor Joseph. Because you know that conversation took place in their house. Now I want you to imagine for a minute, how big of a shadow did Jesus cast over his brothers and sisters? You want to talk about living in someone else's shadow? Listen, we don't have a lot of information about Jesus' early years growing up. As a matter of fact, with just one exception, we don't know anything outside of the, the birth of Jesus, and then maybe a few events that took place in the first few years of his life, all the way up until he turns 30, and that's when he begins his public ministry of traveling and teaching and doing miracles. With one exception, we have one story out of Luke chapter 2 when Jesus is 12 years old. Jesus' parents take him to Jerusalem for a religious festival, and Jesus gets lost. Or maybe it's more appropriate to say Jesus' parents got lost. And they can't find him. And finally, after searching frantically, they find Jesus. He's sitting in the temple at 12 years old talking theology with the religious leaders and teachers, and everyone is blown away at his level of maturity and understanding and the answers that he gives. Imagine what it would have been like to live in the shadow of Jesus as one of his brothers or sisters. Wonder Boy, Prodigy, Genius, Jesus cast a big shadow. And let me just tell you this, for his brothers, living under that shadow did not go over well at all. Look here at Mark chapter 3 with me. Then he, that's Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. If you had a sibling growing up, maybe you have a great relationship with them now, maybe not so much, but you understand the challenge and the difficulty that comes with a sibling who draws in a lot of attention. It was not easy for his brothers and sisters. It was not easy for them to see everywhere Jesus went, and especially when he came home to their house, how the crowds flocked crowding around, made it difficult to just eat. And at certain points, his brothers were like, enough is enough. 
Now listen, these brothers knew that there was something different. There was something special about Jesus. I mean, they had heard all the stories because you know Mary and Joseph had, had sat down around uh, the dinner table or the campfire and sitting down in the evening telling stories about when the angel visited them and pronounced that Jesus, God's holy, long-promised anointed, long anointed one, was going to be born, that Mary and Joseph were going to be tasked with raising him and preparing him for his ministry. You know, they had heard all the stories. They had heard people talk over and over and over again about how great their older brother was. They knew there was something special. Let me tell you this. Knowing about Jesus and knowing about what he's capable of is very, very different than knowing who he really is. Look at me in John chapter 7. So his brother said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, so that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if you seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. His brothers knew what Jesus was capable of. And as Jesus is traveling through the countryside to little village, from little village to little village, throughout Galilee, they go, listen, brother. <laughs> I mean, if you really want to make a name, if you really want to do something with your skill set, you need to go to the big city. If you really want people to see what you're doing and know what you're capable of, why are you hanging out here? Go to Judea. Go to Jerusalem. Go to the big city. Go show off there. Check this out. For not even his brothers believe in him. Because there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing about what he's capable of and then actually knowing who he really is. So today we are starting a new series. Today is our first introduction into that series. And we're going to be going through, as a church together, the book of James in the New Testament. Now we call it a book, but it's really a letter. It's a letter written early in the first century to a group of Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire in which the author, James, is trying to encourage these Christians to stay faithful in the midst of difficult trials and persecutions and to recognize the implications the gospel has on our life. The gospel being the, the message, the good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and its universe-shattering implications for all of humanity, for all of creation, and for you personally. What makes the book or the letter of James so interesting is that it was written by a man, man named James. I assume you all got that answer right. Hopefully. Book of James was written by a letter, was written by a man named James. But what makes this especially powerful is that if you remember back to Matthew 13, the first passage we read together, James was one of the brothers of Jesus. And this is how he begins his letter. James, the 
servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tana. I don't know if you catch the significance of what is here. Now, this is a standard first century greeting that an author of a letter in the first century would put. But what makes this especially powerful? James, the half-brother of Jesus, the one who thought his brother was going crazy, the one who thought Jesus was getting a little too much attention that was starting to get out of hand. James, the one who, when Jesus was alive, didn't actually believe in him. James calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus. What in the world would cause this man to call Jesus his brother, Lord, and to label himself as his servant. Here in 1 Corinthians 13, 15, starting verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Earlier we talked about the gospel. This sentence, verse 3 and 4, this sentence is the gospel in a nutshell. That Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That long before Jesus did it, it was a part of God's plan. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas. That's another, uh, another name for Peter. Then to the twelve. And he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive. Though some have fallen asleep, it's as if Paul is saying, listen, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of us after his resurrection. Some have passed, but most are still alive. Ask him if you want. And then he appeared to James. And then he appeared to James. Now listen, there has always been a lot of talk and discussion and debate about the historical reliability and viability of the resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And certainly a lot of people will take the approach that, well, the Bible says it happened, so I believe it. And there's nothing wrong with that argument because we do believe the scriptures are true. That the scriptures very clearly teach that Jesus was raised from the dead. But there are a lot of people who take it to a next step. There's a whole group of historians who utilize historical reliability models and methods to examine and verify the historical reliability of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. They're fascinating books. They're very highly technical. And it can be a challenge to read if you're not familiar with how the the models of historical reliability work. But aside from all the work and the research that historians do, if you want a single piece of evidence that stands as perhaps the strongest evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, I don't know that there is any better place to look than 
the life transformation of James. A man who didn't believe that Jesus was anything special than a miracle worker. Who was annoyed by all the attention that Jesus himself got. This James who was intrigued enough that he would physically follow Jesus and watch from a distance, but was not bought in, who didn't buy it because spiritually he wasn't actually interested in following Jesus. And then he met his brother, resurrected from the grave, and it changed everything. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was the Son of God? That your brother was the King of the universe? That your brother not only existed before you, but even before your parents, and that your brother had a hand in creating your parents and in creating you? What would it take for you to believe that your brother was the Son of God worthy of your worship and total devotion? I don't know how your household ran growing up. I've got two brothers and a sister. Do you know what would have happened in my family if one of us boys had come home and told the others, hey, I'm the son of God and you should bow down and worship me? That brother would have gotten punched in the mouth. That's how it would have worked in my family. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was truly the son of God? The promised anointed one who God began foretelling thousands of years before. For James, the only thing that would convince him was the physical resurrection of Jesus. After Jesus rose from the dead, he spent about a month with his closest followers, which now newly included his own brothers. And just before Jesus ascended and returned to heaven, he told his followers, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave. Stay in Jerusalem. I want you to gather together, and I want you to pray. I want you to pray, because when I get back to my rightful place, sitting on the throne of heaven, I am going to send the Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit will come and live inside of you. The Holy Spirit will remind you of all the things that I've taught. The Holy Spirit will equip you to share the gospel message with others. And the Holy Spirit will empower you to carry on my ministry and my mission. I am passing the baton on to you. The Holy Spirit is going to help you carry it forward. That's exactly what happens. Look at Acts chapter 1 verse 14. All these with one accord, all these followers were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. James began praying passionately for the Holy Spirit to come so that he could carry on the ministry and the mission of his brother Jesus. The Holy Spirit does fall. The Holy Spirit begins to empower all those who are there to begin preaching the gospel message in languages they had never spoken before. Because Jerusalem at this time was filled with foreigners from all over different parts of the Roman Empire for a holiday festival. And they begin preaching and proclaiming 
the good news of Jesus, his death, and his resurrection to all those who were there. And then Peter, sort of the leader of the 12 disciples, gets up, preaches the first Christian sermon, and 3,000 people got saved that day. The first church was born in Jerusalem. And do you know who became the pastor? of the first Christian church to ever exist? James. For the next three decades, James will be one of, if not the senior leader and voice for Christianity throughout the Roman Empire, anchored in Jerusalem at sort of the mother church there. Even people like Peter and Paul will go to visit James to get his wisdom and his counsel and to make sure that they were in agreement with the things that James and his church were teaching. Now, there are two primary men named James in the New Testament. The first is one of the original 12 disciples, James, whose brother was John. This James believed in Jesus very early and was a fully devoted and committed follower of Jesus. But this James, the brother of John, one of the twelve disciples, was murdered for his faith just a few years after the resurrection by King Herod. The other James, James the brother of Jesus, James who becomes the leader and the pastor of the Jerusalem church, who becomes the spokesperson what the church stood for in the first century. He, we read primarily about in the book of Acts. Now, in Acts, we read about the death of the first James, the brother of John, one of the twelve disciples. We don't get to hear about the death of the other James, the brother of Jesus, because the book of Acts ends just a few years before this James, the brother of Jesus, would also be murdered for his faith and his bold preaching about Jesus, his brother. What we do have from historical records is that in the early 60s, as James was boldly preaching about Jesus, he started stepping on some toes, just like his brother Jesus had done. And that he eventually offended enough of the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, some of whom probably had a hand in executing Jesus themselves, finally got tired of James's bold preaching. And so one day they took him to the top of the temple walls and they threw him off the 60-foot walls. Much to their frustration and disappointment, James survived the fall, though barely. So with him laying at the bottom of the wall, they picked up sticks and they bashed in his head. And these historical accounts tell us that as they were about to club him to death, James began praying for those men who were about to kill him, just like his brother Jesus had prayed for his executioners from the cross. So today is just an introduction. We're going to take a journey through the book of James over the next few months. Now, I recognize we have covered a grand total of half a verse today. That is not the speed at which we are going through this entire book. We would be here for 12 years if that were the case. 
we are going to spend on average two to three messages per chapter, and there are five chapters in the book of James. It's going to take us right up until the time uh, that we get ready to prepare for Christmas. I know some of you are weird, and you're already preparing for Christmas, but the rest of us <laughs> will wait until after Thanksgiving. And it'll take us right up into that season. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to encourage and challenge all of you to read the book of James with us during this study. The book of James takes anywhere between 10 and 15 minutes to read, depending on your reading speed. Just as a test, I read the book of James this week out loud at just a comfortable speaking pace. It took me exactly 12 minutes. You could read through the book of James every day without too much effort. Or you could divide it up. You could read one chapter a day, which would take you maybe three minutes, and you could get through the entire book of James in less than a week. And by the time we finish this series, you could read through the book of James 15 times before we're done. Maybe you want to take a different approach. You want to just focus on one chapter a week and just reread that one chapter every day for a few minutes. One of the things that I also want to encourage you to do is to find passages in this book to memorize. There will be some things that when you read them, they will stand out to you. That God will make it known to you right then and there that this is something I need buried deep in my heart and in my mind. Or maybe there will be verses that will be highlighted to you as we preach through this book. But I encourage you, I challenge you to read through it consistently to begin memorizing it. As you read, what you'll find is that James is passionate about people understanding the implications of the gospel in their lives. Unlike Paul, James does not really break apart the gospel and explain what it all means. James assumes you already know what the gospel is, and he wants you to see the power it should have in your lives. I'll also tell you this. James is a little harsh, a little rough around the edges, and he has no patience for people who are only half in. The radical transformation James experienced in his own life shapes how he sees the gospel in others. Seeing the resurrected Jesus changed so much for James that he is pleading with people, if you believe in the resurrection, this is how it should radically transform your life. This is how it should play itself out in every day. This is verse 1. We only read the first half. It says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and the twelve tribes in the dispersion Greece. Shortly after James became a follower of Jesus and a leader of the Jerusalem church, there was a man named Stephen who was murdered. He was the first martyr of the Christian faith. And what happened is that when James, I mean, excuse me, when Stephen was murdered, up until that point, pretty much all Christians lived or were staying in Jerusalem gathering together every day, praying together, commuting with one another, doing life together and encouraging one another. And when James, I mean, excuse me, when Stephen was martyred, they realized they had a target on the back and most Christians left Jerusalem. Now, they didn't leave out of fear and they didn't leave like they were abandoning their faith. They just went back home. And the Bible tells us that they started preaching as they were traveling back home and in their hometowns. So now you have Christians all over the Roman Empire who don't have a home church anymore unless a new church is birthed in their hometown as they get back and start preaching. And so James, in the early 40s, writes this letter to 
encouraged Christians throughout the Roman Empire. And he uses very Jewish and Old Testament um, wording here, language here, the 12 tribes in the dispersion to talk about who he's writing to. He's writing to these fellow Christians, these people of God, wherever they find themselves. James is writing to people that he knows well personally and to people he's never even met. James is writing to committed, fully devoted Christians, and he's writing to brand new Christians as well. And so wherever you find yourself today, a little bit of a new Christian, maybe someone who's a little on the fence, or someone who's given their whole life and devoted everything to following Jesus. While James wasn't writing to you because you didn't live in the first century, because this is a part of the Bible, it is written for you. For you to be encouraged and challenged. As we close this morning, here's what I want to challenge you. How has the resurrection shaped your life? Because in James' mind, there's no middle ground. James, if, if Jesus physically rose from the dead, then it should change everything about your life. It should redefine who you are. It should change the course and the direction and the trajectory of your life. So as you sit here this morning, have you met the resurrected Jesus? Because there's a big difference between knowing who Jesus is sort of about him and know details about his life to know what he's capable of versus actually knowing who he really is. Do you know the Lord Jesus? Have you met him? Has he transformed your life? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for our time this morning that we have had to come and to think and to reflect. Lord, we want to honor you with all of our lives. We want the resurrection to redefine who we are, to change the direction and the trajectory and the course of our life. Because Jesus, if you rose from the dead, it changes everything. We don't want to just know about you. We don't want to just know what you're capable of. We want to know you. So would you meet us right where we are this morning? Would you speak to our hearts and our lives? I'm going to encourage you to keep your mouth and your, your, your eyes closed this morning. And I just want you to ask yourself that question. Have you met the resurrected Jesus? Has he changed your life? Or do you just know about Jesus, but you don't really know him? Have you met the resurrected Jesus? Has he transformed your life? Are you a new person because of it? If not, this is our open invitation to you. Because Jesus is here. He's here to meet with you. He's here to speak to you. He wants to do something in your mind and your heart this morning. So will you open your mind, will you open your heart to him, to following him, to being a fully devoted, fully committed follower of the Lord Jesus. Will you be his servant to let him rule and reign in your life? Lord, thank you for who you are, for all that you have done, all that you continue to do, for the ways in which you move and you speak. To be honored by all the ways in which we respond this morning. What we think, what we pray, what we sing. As we
we lift you high, Lord Jesus.